Well, good morning, everyone. We're going to get started here, so... What's that? That's uh, all right. All right. Well, <clears throat> I am not Roger. So I, I'm sure you, you knew that. But Roger was scheduled to teach this morning, and uh, I'm not him. And uh, I am not going to teach on the subject that he was teaching. Actually, um, we determined that I would teach this morning late, actually early this morning. So um, Roger, uh, we could be praying for Roger. Roger's back locked up, and uh, he's in a tremendous amount of pain, and so... It, it just wasn't going to be possible for him to, to teach this morning. So just be praying for him. Lord, we reveal, re, re, uh, um, remove that pain from him. If this is any indication of how I'm going to teach today, we're in trouble. Uh, so, yeah, we just praying for Roger and, and uh, ask the Lord to just restore him. And, and uh, so I'm going to fill in. And so what we're going to do uh, is actually we're going to just kind of work off the cuff this morning and... We did a Q&A a while back, so we're going to do another Q&A. And uh, I'll just throw out to you guys if you have questions. I have questions that um, so we can fill the space because there's plenty of stuff to kind of talk about. But I want to uh, I want to see if, there, if you guys have any questions that have been on your mind and heart, and we'd love to work through, and I'll do the best I can to, to try to answer those questions well this morning and, and not get myself in trouble. So uh, to that end... <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> Ask the Lord to help us. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the, just the freedom that we have to gather. Lord, that uh, we live in a, a time and a place where we can do this openly and freely. Um, but Lord, we also thank you for the way that we can do this freely within ourselves, even as we think about shame. And uh, as we talked last week about the shame of sin, Lord, we're so grateful that you have, uh, that you have satisfied your wrath against us, and you have dealt with our guilt entirely. And Lord, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so we are free to gather as your people, and we are free to worship you within ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that we would freely do that. Father, we, wanna, we do want to lift up Roger to you and just ask, Lord, that you would bring healing to his body and uh, that you would bring relief from the pain that he is experiencing right now and that you would... Encourage his soul, Lord, that you would um, turn his heart to you and help him to remember, Lord, that you love him and that uh, he, he is your child and that you're good to him. And Lord, be with me as I fill in and help protect me, Lord, from, from me and from anything that I might say that would in any way dishonor you. Lord, guide our discussion this morning and, and may it be honoring and glorifying to you. I pray in your name. Amen. All right, well, come on in, and uh, if you're just joining us, what we, uh, I just, uh, Roger is unavailable to teach this morning, so I'm filling in, we're just going to do a Q&A, and uh, so I'll throw it out there. Anybody have any burning questions that, man, I'd love for Kelly to address that, either from messages that have been recently preached or other things that are on your heart and mind.
Yes. Uh, okay, sure. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Yeah, good question. I've been thinking about this, so um, I, I haven't. So I'll, I'll try the best I can here to not get myself in trouble. And I, I assume that we'll all show one another grace in this arena. And we, we confess this is a difficult arena, right? It's a difficult subject, especially today in this hot climate we live in. And I mean hot in the sense of just tensions high and and in a, in a in a climate in which um, we're so quick to cancel one another, you say the wrong thing and you're out. And there's no ability to kind of listen back and forth and have discussion. And everybody just quickly takes offense. And so I know that's not descriptive of us here, but that is our culture. Um, so the government is a, a gift of God. Um, and so we, we can begin there. The scriptures tell us to submit to our governing authorities. And there is a, a nature in which uh, there is a, 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 an order in which God has ordered things in this world. And um, I'm, I'm fond of uh, the, the terminology from Al Mohler talking about subsidiarianism. Um, so God is, uh, if you ever listen to Al Mohler, he talks about how God has designed this world with, with uh, authority structures that increasingly get larger. And that begins with um, the individual and our, our, we're, we're submitting to God and to his authority, but then he creates the family and that family is the most base unit and that's the, the, the foundation of culture and society. And then from the family, you go out to maybe your town or your, your village, to your county, to your state, to the federal government, to global. And so, and God has ordered this. And, but the further away you get, from the family, the more difficult it is to manage and to control and to govern well, right? But the Lord has given those things to us as gifts. So our federal government and our state governments are gifts to us, and we're to submit to them. But in our system of government, we're also part of what we're actually uh, given the right to do and actually the duty to do is to play a role in that civics, um, in, in the choice of our elected officials. And so I do think that there's a way in which I, I become morally culpable by what I do with the way I vote. So the way I vote has a moral component to it. There is a way I can dishonor the Lord with my vote or honor him with my vote. Government is not inherently spiritual. So the Lord has clearly, if you look through the history, look at Cyrus. The Lord used Cyrus, the king of Persia, he, he clearly put Cyrus in that place, and he clearly used Cyrus. 
he, he, that was part of the order of things, and yet Cyrus was anything but a, a lover of God. And so anything but a spiritual person. If you go back through the history of our country, I, I dare say there'd be many of our presidents who have not been spiritual people. So I, I wouldn't say that that ought to be the governing principle for how we vote for someone or not. So if, if I vote for to take the president on the basis of whether he's a Christian or not, then I, I will likely never have someone to vote for. And I don't think that's the way God intended it. So having said that, we recognize that we're often voting for, in fact, in every case, even if they are a believer, we are voting for a sinner. And, and we're voting for someone who, who doesn't rise up to the standards of holiness before God and, and has many broken aspects to him. So we ought not to be looking for someone who's perfect. Um, we do live in a, a, a system where there's two parties, um, a binary kind of system, and realistically, that's the only way it's going to be. And I think the one thing that we ought to do is then take a step back and look at those look at those, and see what they actually believe, what they actually do, and how does that line up with what would be honoring to the Lord or not honoring to the Lord. I, um, listen, I, I think we have clear commands in Scripture, and let me just use one. Um, we have the clear command in Scripture, thou shalt not murder. And that, um, when, when you have politicians that advocate for the murder of an individual, um, if I vote for that, I, I would suggest that I'm, I'm complicit in that. Let, let me use an example here. Let's imagine, let's go back to 1939, and let's, let's move ourselves to Germany, and let's um, assume that we live in a democratic society where we elect a leader like Hitler. And let's assume that we know that Hitler is actively um, killing Jews and actively murdering um, people in concentration camps. I know that, and it, I, I vote for him anyway. I am culpable for that. I'm culpable. And so we do have people who advocate for the murder of unborn children, right up to, in fact, even beyond birth. If I vote for that person, I think I'm culpable for that. I, I, I have to take a stand on explicit commands of God, you shall not murder. And so if you look at that through our political lens today, I think that that would help at least eliminate many. And, and, would, uh, would, and I think that that's probably a more important and more explicit issue than the religious liberty and the idea that of, of extinction of extinction of our faith because yeah um, so does that mean that I, I have to vote for the other again I, I would suggest you look at the platform of the other side and ask are they standing up for life and you, you can evaluate that and decide whether or not you believe they're actually standing for life and that you can vote for that Likely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, and I would agree with you. I think that we, we are in a time where if, if there are those who are actively working to, to, um, to persecute the church, really, to shut down what we would say or do. Um, now, I might, I might quibble a bit. I think that there has been, um, there are substantive things done to protect life. There are ways in which that is, and, and there is at least some reasonable chance that that some lives will be protected, or at least that where we're at now will not be increased and expanded. And so we'll save lives in the sense that we're not increasing uh, something. And I think there is a substantive difference there. So follow up on that. Yeah, I know that's... Yes. <laughs> yeah, the Underground Railroad being the, the work of those who are seeking to set slaves free. Um, you know what, I'm going to reserve the right to, to not answer those questions right now. Yeah. Yeah, I... I yeah, I have gone in my own soul. I man, I have thought deeply and much about even like the Revolutionary War and what I would have done had I been there. And I, 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 I man, I, I go back and forth on that, and I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, on both sides. Yeah. 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 That's good. Thank you. Yeah. Did I did I I if you want to talk to me more personally about about the political issues, I I have strong political feelings. Um and, but I just don't I just and, and and it's not as though I don't think that we ought to speak to politics because we we do as Christians, we are engaged in, our, in, our, in the civics of our nation, and we have a duty and responsibility. Um, and I do think that there are clearly things that the, the Bible... I mean, I, I don't think you can vote for, like I said, I don't think you can vote for someone that you know is intent on taking life. I just... I, I, think, you, I think that that is... That, I think you'd have to explain how you are how you are taking that and accommodating that to your faith that says you don't murder. And so that's just one example, and I think there are many others we could look at in that vein. So I do think it matters, but at the same time, I don't want to give the impression, and and I think that one of the things that we wrestle with in our nation in particular is the idea that God is working, I mean, that, that, that our government is God. And the Supreme Court is God, and, and if we don't have the right Supreme Court justices and we don't have the right uh, president, then we're, we're, oh my goodness. Well, yes, those things matter, but God sits on his throne, and he's in control, and he puts these people in place. And so we ought to take 
our responsibilities seriously. We have to engage in our, in our civics. And by the way, I think we ought to know. I, thought, I think we ought to be informed as people. I think we ought to know and be informed. I think it is, I think it is wrong for us to not pay attention to what's going on in our country on a political level because I think that the Lord has given us in saying in Romans 13, submit to your governing authorities. I think in our country he's given us the duty and part of that submission is to play a role civically, which means I ought to know. I'm not talking about immersing yourself in, in the news or anything like that, but you ought to have some sense of what's going on so that you can have an informed decision. So, and I think we ought to vote. I think that, that that's a duty that we ought to fulfill. So, All right, let's move on from that. And if you have questions personally, you can ask me later. Yeah. Yeah. So um, if I'm walking through Walmart and I, I uh, observe someone doing something that's sinful, I hear maybe hear profanity. OK, um, I don't I don't have there's no it's not going to be received. There's no relational context for me to, to pull that person aside. I don't have a covenant relationship with that person whereby I have the place God hasn't given me the place to speak to that person. I need to have a some place that the Lord has given to me to speak into your life. There could be. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I ought to be. Yeah, I ought to be. Uh, so we don't want to use what I just said as an excuse not to evangelize and not to engage with people. And so I ought, I ought to be seeking for um, and looking for the ways that the Lord opens up opportunities for me. And I ought to be open to that and understand that that just because I don't currently have that doesn't mean I can't have that. And part of what I have to do is being a disciple maker is looking for those relational opportunities that that open the door for me. But I think. Um, the reality of it is, if we were going to confront sin, that's all you would do. You'd walk through Walmart and you'd be stopping everyone, right? And Yeah. Yeah. No, they're not intimately tied together such that they can't be separated because I have a responsibility to speak into the world around me. And, and many of those people, the, my neighbor who's an unbeliever, needs to hear the gospel, needs to be corrected, needs to be called to repentance, but I don't have a, a, a relationship with them within the context of the church. Um, I may have a good friend who doesn't uh, belong to this church but belongs to another, and, and in interaction, things are coming. I, I have a, an obligation out of love for him to correct. And so, um, but I don't just indiscriminately go around correcting people. There has to be some basis for, is what I'm saying, there has to be some basis for that interaction. But again, I shouldn't use that as an excuse not to. I have to be, um, I have to be careful in that. So hopefully that clears that up. This is not an easy, it's not like a, 
like a clear line here, right? This takes discernment, wisdom. Absolutely. Yeah, my goal with the unbeliever or those who I might think are unbelievers, um, well, actually, all of my interactions ought to be gospel-oriented, right? Ought to be, ought never to be moralistic or behaviorally oriented. But, but there is a difference between the person who doesn't know Christ at all and what they need to hear and the believer who does know Christ and needs to hear specific correction about issues. I'm not going to, my desire for uh, the unbeliever is not to see them stop using profanity, per se. My desire is for them to know Christ. My desire to see the believer who might be tempted to profanity is um, helping them to see how profanity dishonors the Christ that they serve and, and love. Yeah. Actually, it, um, Martin Luther um, spent a great deal of time, um, and I think it's something that we outside of the Lutheran communities have kind of lost a bit of, in the idea that the distinction... So let me, let me say this, and then we'll come back and, and add more nuance to it. So the distinction between the law and the gospel. Now, in the big picture, Martin Luther didn't see a difference between the law and the gospel. He, he believed that to be the same, but in the particular, we have the law, the Ten Commandments, right? And then we have the message of Christ, the, the particular gospel. Okay, does that make sense? So the gospel is the whole of the message of the Bible, but, but there are particulars of it. And he, he would say that you need, in interacting with people, uh, you need to, to know whether you ought to be bringing the law to them or the gospel to them. And you don't bring the gospel to those people who are not contrite, who don't see their sin. You bring the law to those people. And so in that conversation, yeah, there are going to be times to point out the law and, and help them see that they're falling short of the standard of God's holiness so that then there's a, a, this, the Spirit works with that to, to create a need for, for Christ. So we do present the law. In fact, we ought to, pre- to, uh, to present the law to the unbeliever first. And we ought to present the law to the, to the uh, rebellious believer who is presuming upon the grace of God. That person needs to hear the law. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, Don. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't. I think that uh, the ultimate reality is that we are citizens of the kingdom as believers. So you, um, our citizenship is in heaven, and so that and it, this uh, message this morning may may help even clarify this further because we're going to be talking about loving the Lord alone, and so when I say I love the Lord alone, that doesn't mean that I don't love anyone else. Right? Because actually, I'm called to love my neighbor. Right, So how on the one hand I can, can I say I love the Lord alone while at the same time knowing that I need to love my neighbor? 
Same thing here. How can I be a citizen of heaven alone while at the same time recognizing that I do have a citizenship that God has given to me here that bears uh, duties and responsibilities with it? And so what I would say is this. The way we, I think we, we help is that we, we understand that the two things ought not to be in competition to one another. So when I say that my citizenship is in heaven, that is the overarching reality that governs everything else. So my citizenship in the United States has to fall up underneath of that and always be filtered through it. And so it doesn't in any way override it, and it doesn't compete with it. It has to come up underneath of it. And so the Lord does give us citizenship in individual um, nations. In this nation, we have duties, responsibilities, not to fulfill them well, underneath of the more ultimate citizenship of heaven. Does that make sense? Right. I don't know. Um, you know, I think that that's where I think that's where um, the problem is going to be that you, you you start getting into the details, and I think that's where um, a believer in that. So you you let's go back to Germany, and you're in in Nazi Germany, and you know that um, you know that the Jews are being exterminated. Do you hide them? Do you protect them? What how what to what lengths do you go? And you know, and I I think that that's where man, we just pray and plead that the Lord would give us his wisdom, scripturally informed in that moment. And it would be so difficult to try to sort out how to come down to some type of clear line here for when or not when. Not, I, but by the way, just I want to be clear. I am not in, in any way suggesting a um, kind of a, a, what's the word I'm looking for, a, a relativism here. There is, I don't believe in a relativism. There is absolute truth here, but... I have to discern how the Lord is speaking into that situation in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I think I'm in that verse where you have people in a Take Rome, for example, where the Roman government is seizing property from believers and they're joyfully recognizing, yeah, that's what they do. What we, what, so we want to do two things here. We want to always hold our liberties and our freedoms and our property and our life even openly in the palm and say, Lord, this is a gift from you. It's not an entitlement to me, and I'm not going to cling to it in this way, while at the same time recognizing that that's a different they were in a different political environment with different duties and responsibilities. And we have duties here to vote, for example, 
And so I ought not to vote for the government to take your property from you or take your life from you. That's a duty uh, that God has given to me based on where I live now in this country that those people didn't have. They didn't have a polling booth to go to and, and they didn't have a, a, a way to speak out that they, that they could have in that. And so they, they held it and said, Lord, you're in control and I'm going to submit. It's like a slave. Um, we, I think we ought to speak out against slavery, right? But if I'm the slave, then I can submit myself to my master and, and not believe that I am entitled to freedom. Other questions? Yeah, let's actually turn to First Timothy chapter 2 and see if, if Paul can help us with this a bit. Um, it's in First Corinthians where um, I think you're specifically referring where women are to be quiet in the church. But I think this passage will help us understand what that quietness is. So the, the same words word for quiet that is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians is used here by Paul in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, um, if, you, if you jump ahead, so we say, um, verse, look at verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but he do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was Adam who was not, uh, and it was not Adam who was deceived but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So, um, and I taught on this, by the way, a while ago on what this means. And I would, based on the context, just generally what Paul is saying is, I don't allow a woman to be an elder within the church. Um, I don't allow her to fulfill the role of teaching and leadership and authority within the church. Um, you're going to, if if anyone has more of an egalitarian way of thinking and has, struggles with that, um, I would argue that your your contention is that with me, you're going to, need to take that up with the Lord because He inspired Paul to write that, and I think it's really clear. So, um, I am strongly complementarian. Believe that God created male and female to complement one another, and that that's part of His original design. And by the way, I think it's one of the things. I think that what Satan is at work to do in um, gender-related issues and sex sexual issues in our culture is actually to undermine the very nature of the image of God in man, male and female. It's not about the, the way in which people engage in sexual activity. It's, it's about the image of God in man. And he created different. He created us differently and, and gave different roles, and that's biblical. So, But he says here, be quiet. And so what does he mean there when he says quiet? Well, I think we're helped if we go earlier in the passage, early in that chapter, in picking up verse 1, he says, First of all, then I urge 
that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Well, is he, he arguing that we ought not to ever say anything in our culture? We ought not to ever ask any questions? We ought not to, to even to voice concerns? Not at all. What he's talking about is an attitude of the heart that is submissive internally and in the soul where I'm quiet. I'm at peace. I'm at rest in myself. I'm not, I'm not contentious. Yes, exactly. So what I think the Lord is saying to women is, listen, don't, in, in, don't be contentious. Don't be stirred up such that you're trying to contend against things. You have legitimate questions. Ask if you have comments to make. Speak. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a, an attitude of contention and, and not a, a quiet and a tranquil or peaceful heart. Does that, does that clarify that? By the way, that's not just a command for women. That, that, that command is for all of us to be quiet in that way. It's just that within the... I think that Paul highlights that for women because um, in, the, in the structures of, of, of leadership and role differentiation within the church, there's a temptation for women to push back against that. Yeah, that's a debate whether that, that passage involves that. Um, yeah, we'll maybe take that on another time. Yeah, so women, so <laughs> I think one of the, one of the, 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 in my opinion, it's just, this is Kelly talking um, this morning. I think one of the, the values of the way that we function here in having elders lead our worship is it moves us away from this idea of worship leader. And, and I, I, I think that um, worship leader, if you, if you look at that in many contexts, what we're actually talking about is someone who's leading music. And what that does is it actually distorts worship and it, it limits it down to worship is when we sing and everything else is something else. And so worship leader is the one who's up leading singing and, and that really, that just, that just distorts what we're doing. So having an elder lead the whole service moves us away from this idea and then it also resolves that issue because like Hannah this morning is leading our music, but she's not leading worship, right? She's facilitating singing and she's not teaching She's not filling the role of elder up there, and so there's no there's no issue with that then. Right, right, exactly. Now, where we run into trouble is where you do have worship leaders, right, and and they 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 particular they play a particular role within the service that is that is teaching oriented or that is elder like, and then when you have a woman filling that role, then that becomes a problem. Now, now you have someone teaching and exercising authority in, a, in an area, in an arena that the Lord didn't, that the Lord didn't. So I would, I would personally take issue with churches that have uh, worship pastors who are women. I think that that's not, that, that goes against what Paul says in, in 1 Timothy in this passage.
Yeah, um, so let's talk about deacons. Uh, we use the term ministry director, um, which is our equivalent of deacon. And I, I think that um, the model for that, I know there's some debate about this, but I, I'm fairly convinced that Acts 6, where you have um, this distinction or this dispute taking place between Hellenistic Jews and Hebrew Jews, and they, they said, listen, appoint uh, seven men to oversee this. This is a task-oriented thing so that we can focus on prayer and the word, which is an elder thing. And I think there you have the, the very beginnings of this kind of dual form of leadership within the church where you have elders and deacons, or what we call ministry directors. And by the way, we call them that because the word deacon is, is overwhelmingly translated in the Bible as ministry and not as deacon. And that's actually not a translation. That's a transliteration, and it's only transliterated a couple of times. It's used over 150 times in the New Testament where it's always translated as ministry or serving or that type of thing. That's why we do that. Um, this is probably a, more of a, a bigger conversation than we can have now, but you can certainly ask me. We clearly take the position that ministry directors or deacons can be female, and I don't see that as a prohibition in Scripture. Um, we can talk more about that. Um, Phoebe is a good example of that, I think. Um, and if that's the case, then then what are they doing? Well, they're fulfilling. The deacon is a, a task-oriented um, thing. It's like the facility here. We want someone to make sure that the facility is cleaned and, and running well, so we would appoint someone to make sure that that happens. That's a deacon task-oriented role, and that, that could be a woman. Music can function that way. And so the scheduling and the planning and all of that stuff that's just around instrumentation, those types of things can function that way. So I could see how a, a music director could be a, a woman. How do you balance those things with using music as uh, teaching, then, then we'd have to be careful about that. No, no worries. Yeah. 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 Excellent question. Let's talk about translation. So, yeah, we have the New American Standard, we have the ESV, we have the NIV, we have all of these various translations. Um, so, first of all, um, this is not new, right? So you go all the way back to Hebrew, to the, to the Hebrew Old Testament, and you have the Hellenistic Jews who are concerned that they want to be able to, to read the Word of God, so they, they translate it into the Greek, and that's called the Septuagint, right? And so right from the very beginning, you have this desire for the Word to be available to the people, and so they translate that into their language, right? And then there becomes different kind of variations on that, as it goes. And what they're trying to do is they're actually trying to help people have access to the word of God. So if I can't read Hebrew then and, and I speak Greek, then what a, what a gift to me to be provided the, the Bible in my own language. So I can read it. And so English translations, that's what, the, that's what the desire is. And that actually came out of the Reformation primarily. Um, it was a, it was a, a, didn't start there but that's part of the reformation. So we're reforming, we're returning back to. And so the reformation comes along and says, we need to get the Bible into the hands of the common person so that they can delight in it. And so let's translate it, right? And let's translate it into English. William Tyndale, um, a very prominent individual who, by the way, was has a, an amazing story of his life. He was like the spy. Um, he was living in disguise and with false names all over 
uh, being chased and hunted down by uh, the government that didn't want the Bible translated into into the languages that people could understand. And they eventually did catch up with him, and he was martyred. Um, So at that time, you have William Tyndale, and you have many others who are translating the Bible into English, and you've got all kinds of different English translations. And uh, everybody's goal is the same, to provide the the Bible in a language that people understand. So then why do those get updated? So take the King James. That was just one of many translations of the time. It just happened to get authorized by King James, right? And, And so it's the authorized version, not because God authorized it, but because the king authorized it at that time, right? But there were many other translations at that time. And uh, so we have the King James. And what, what is the King James? Well, the King James is uh, a translation given to the people at that time in a, in a way that they would understand and read in their language, right? And so uh, others come along and go, you know, language changes over time, right? It develops and we no longer use certain words. Think of the word conversation. What does it mean? What does conversation mean? Talking. Now, you go back to, uh, I think, even the King James, and you read uh, first, or you read Philippians 1.27, and it says, only let your conversation be worthy of the gospel. Now, whereas you would read in the New American Standard, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. You say, only, what is this conversation? Well, if you go back to King James time, the word conversation meant the conduct of your life. Well, we don't use that word anymore. It's just going to be confusing. And so the New American Standard Committee comes along and says, you know, we need to update this. We need to to make this more readable. And so you have another kind of version that comes along. And you have all of these various versions that are seeking to bring the, the, the original text into a language in a way that you and I can understand it. Now, each of those translating committees has an overarching kind of philosophy of what they're going to do. So let's talk about three. Let's talk about the New American Standard, the ESV, and the NIV. Okay? The ESV, the whole, in fact, by the way, if you, if you look at your Bible, you'll have this explained for you in the introduction to your Bible. Most Bibles actually have a section where it explains their, their uh, philosophy of translation. Okay, so New American Standard Committee, those who translated that, their goal was to translate from the Greek into the English with a a way that you could read it while at the same time staying as close as possible to the original and not making interpretive decisions for you. So they will leave vague statements rather than interpreting what that statement means. Does that make sense? following me? So, love of God. They're going to leave it love of God rather than God's love. Do you see the difference? God's love is, that's just slightly different in meaning potentially than love of God. You're forced when you read love of God to ask, okay, love of God, what is, how, does, how does it mean of God? Is that from God? Is it his? Well, the New American Standard isn't going to make that decision for you. They're going to make you wrestle with it. Let's jump over to NIV. The NIV is what's called a dynamic equivalent, and their goal is to actually make those interpretive decisions for you and to help you understand that. So they're going to, they're going to write it in such a way that they've made many interpretive decisions for you. 
while trying to remain faithful to the original text. So you've got this spectrum. Now, you can move into paraphrases like the Amplified Bible or the New Living or the Message. Those are more commentaries. They're not actually translations. Those are commentaries. And we ought not to read those as the Bible because you have people expanding and amplifying in such a way that they're really, they're just, it's more like a sermon. They may or may not be right. NIV is not amplified in that way. Um, We can take issue with their interpretations, but they're trying to be faithful. The ESV sits in the middle. The ESV kind of says, we're trying to be faithful here and, and not quite so interpretive while at the same time recognizing that some interpretation needs to be done so here. Did, did, I, did I thoroughly confuse you, or is that, is that clear? Yeah, all of them. <laughs> um, what I would suggest you do is you read the scriptures in multiple translations um, so that you can see where those questions come up. Because when I read the NIV over against the New American Standard, I'm also I'm I'm often kind of jolted into realizing that there's an interpretive decision that I need to make that I wouldn't have seen if I'm only reading the NIV. And and conversely with the NAS, sometimes I'm helped to, to understand what the NAS is saying by looking at another translation. It kind of helps me. But I understand that when interpretive decisions are being made for you, that 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 is what that is. It's an interpretive decision. And, and ultimately, you need to study and discern whether or not... Because the, NA, the NAS makes interpretive decisions too, right? They, they just make fewer. So you just have to be careful. So I would say um, I, I use the New American Standard mostly. Um, but if I were just going to be... If I'm studying, I'm going to be looking at... If, if I didn't have access to the original, I would be looking at... Like in the Old Testament, I'm going to look at multiple translations. Yeah. Well, here, here's the thing. So let's let maybe this will be helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know you're not saying that. There's wonderful things about the King James version. There's, it's poetic. Um, it tends to be a little easier to memorize uh, because of its poet, poetic character. Um, but it's just, it's hard to understand because it's using language and terminology that we don't use. Um, so are we familiar? So idiomatic phrases. Um, so an idiom or an idiomatic phrase is like, um, and we've, we've found this with our kids. They were growing up, we'd use these idioms, and they, they look at you like, what do you mean? It's like, kick the bucket, for example. Um, our kids didn't, it was like, what, what, what does that mean, kick the bucket? Well, does everybody know what that means? Anyone not know what that means, kids? It means t- to die, right? So now, if you're reading, if, if you're like 300 years from now, and you're, you're translating and you come across this idiom, kick the bucket in something, and you're wanting people to understand what that means, you might, be, you might think to yourself, you know, I need, to, I need to actually bring this, I need to actually remove the idiom and actually say what it means. Because otherwise people aren't going to have any idea 
of what this means. Um, in fact, I have a book entitled, uh, it's a French book, but it's entitled Ciel Mon Mari, which literally means sky my husband. Okay, now if I'm reading French and I'm going, and I read that phrase, Ciel Mon Mari, Mon Mari, I'm thinking sky my husband. I have no idea what this means. It actually means to commit adultery. Well, um, if I were to translate that, I'm not going to translate with sky my husband, right? I'm going to translate don't commit adultery. And that's what I think where this cubit issue and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, translators are wrestling with do we leave the idiom there or not? And that's what they're trying to do. And by gifts, I, I, I take you to mean like skills and talents. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think the way that we turn to Romans 14, let's turn there. And I think, I think from Romans 14, we can, we can find kind of a governing principle that will help guide us as we think about that. Romans 14 is just one example, but um, we could go to others. Let's pick it up, verse 7. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. If I place that as the governing understanding of my life, that I'm not my own, I belong to the Lord, that every talent and gift or every talent that I have, or every skill that I have, and the gifts that he's given me, particularly within the church, are from him. And they're not only from him, but they're for him, and they're to be governed by him. Then I ought to, then that gives me a framework whereby I can think about, okay, so then what does that mean for me? Um, and should I not seek to enhance, or should I not seek to improve upon the skills that God has given me for his glory? The question is, why am I doing it? If, if I am seeking to go and improve myself for me, then that, that, becomes, then that, that becomes coveting. That becomes something where I'm, I'm laying hold of something that doesn't actually belong to me and using it for me. And I'm not content in what God has given to me. But if I take that and say, I need to go and get um, further education, for example, or improve a skill, and I'm doing that because God has given this to me and I want to be a good steward of what God has given to me so that I can use it for his kingdom... Then, then that's a way to, to kind of keep that in check. Is that? Uh, 
Boy, that's, uh, <laughs> that's really difficult in our culture because there's so many varieties of things to be listening to. Um, here's, here's, let, me, let me say it this way. Um, and I think we'll all struggle with knowing exactly where these lines are. But I think the one thing I want to be asking myself is, does this edify my soul? Or does this turn me away from Christ? So if I'm watching things that are turning me away from Christ or listening to things that are turning me away from Christ, then I, 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 shouldn't, I shouldn't be engaging. There ought to be some edification. There ought to be some means of, of uplifting my soul and whatnot. And so just to give a good example, and I'm, don't hear me, don't hear me um, prescribing what you all must do, okay? But for me, uh, I love classic rock. Um, Boston and uh, other bands along those lines, and but as I listen to their music, um, it doesn't edify my soul, and it actually turns me away from Christ lyrically, and so I, I don't listen. And I mean that that's there's a part of me that oh that's a bummer, but at the same time the Lord has also provided wonderful alternatives in music that I can listen to that are uplifting to me. And there are other things that I can read and watch and see that, that are uplifting. And so that, I think that's kind of the governing principle for me. Is does, this, does this edify me, uplift me, aim me to the Lord, or does it turn me away? And does it cause me to, to buy into the world's ways of thinking? And so. Yeah, yeah. So, in other words, the point of of seeking to develop and grow in our faith, so that 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 gift of prophecy, for example, is better used. Yeah, I think I think I know there's a lot of controversy over what prophecy is in the New Testament. I I think at it there's I think it's at least preaching, Um, and so as a preacher, I ought to be studying. I ought to be laboring to grow in my understanding of the scriptures and understanding the gospel so that I can preach well. And I think that's part of what you're talking about there, and that, that does tie into what I think I need to expand my faith, my understanding, and grow that skill, which is also a gift. we got time for one more. Maybe, depending on the, the complexity of it. Okay, well, well, we'll end there. If you have other questions, things that, that have sparked, please listen, male or female alike, <laughs> I want to be, I want, I, we are open, I'm open. So if you hear me say something in a message that, you know, I, listen, I'm not perfect, and sometimes I say things that I, I can go back later and go, oh, Kelly, you didn't, you didn't do that well. And so if you're confused about something I've said or troubled by something, please, please, please come talk to me. And, and I, I don't think I bite, um, but I, I try not to anyway. So um, I want to be open to those things. So please um, approach me and ask. Um, and certainly if it troubles you because you don't want to let something go on troubling you, 
and not, not get it clarified uh, from me or for anyone else that's teaching, Roger or, or Jeremy or Dan or others that have taught. Um, we want to be, be willing to, to engage and ask questions and make sure that we're clear. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, we thank you again for the love that you've given to us uh, in your son. Uh, Lord, that, it, that love is just so uh, clearly demonstrated in the sacrifice that you've, uh, you've made on our behalf. Lord, help us to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all of our strength. And Lord, may you be the delight of our minds and souls. And Lord, we, we confess that when it comes to the particulars of this life, there are so many things that are confusing to us and difficult to sort through. But Lord, we know that you're so, so kind. You're filled, filled with grace. You abound in grace. And Lord, you also have told us that if we lack wisdom, you'll give it. Lord, help us to know and be convinced that that wisdom comes through your word and so that we might be governed by your word. And Lord, I just ask that you would continue to to deepen our understanding and our faith in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.